Hello everyone and welcome to Celebrating Cinema. If you haven't already, please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on and continue to share. It really helps us to keep doing this and speak with filmmakers who we love. And this conversation is certainly a filmmaker we love dearly, especially myself. I had the pleasure to speak with British filmmaker Ken Loach about his latest film and what may be his final film after 60 years of directing, The Old Oak. We've been in this village all our lives and we're supposed to share it with that lot we don't even know them. Thank you for your kindness when we arrived. I really appreciate it. Everywhere's closed. Even the school's gone. We can't even look after our own. Just going from back to worse, isn't it? Imagine if all the families mix and start to eat together. If you eat together, you stick together. It's not charity. This is solidarity. This is about we do something together. It takes strength to build something new. It takes strength to build something beautiful. For those who may not be as familiar with the name or perhaps know just how iconic Ken Loach is, let me fill you in. Ken started making films in the 1960s with films like Cafe Come Home, which put a real spotlight on homelessness, an issue at the time that was rarely spoken about. Since then, he has made standout films like Kez, Land and Freedom, and more recently, Sorry We Missed You, which have all garnered enormous respect and recognition in Europe and around the world. While awards are not always necessarily the best indication of a filmmaker's quality, Ken is one of only nine people to win the famous Khan Palm d'Or twice for The Wind That Shakes the Barley, starring Killian Murphy about Ireland's struggle for independence from the colonial British, and I, Daniel Blake, a middle-aged man who is declared unfit to work but has rejected state welfare. But what is it that makes Ken so unique? For me, Ken Loach has always spoken truth to power in the most authentic ways possible. His film style is what is known as social realism, which aims to draw attention to the real socio-political conditions of the working class as a means to critique the power structures behind these conditions. But to add to this realism, he has always sought to collaborate with the very people who his films are about. So often it will be ordinary people from different working class communities who get to tell their own story in their authentic accents. Ken has always combined his films with activism, fighting for what's right and always being courageously vocal on a whole range of issues. Now, more than ever, we need more filmmakers like Ken. For 87 years old, you'll hear just how sharp and engaging Ken still is. Watching his new film, The Old Oak, I was most surprised about just how important hope and solidarity still are for him. This is a film set in an old miners' town in the north of England, which has become completely desolate due to the collapse of an entire industry. And this is also where the UK government are deciding to house refugees, in particular Syrian refugees. We see two different communities, both with their own struggles, grappling with these new circumstances, stoking familiar racist fears, but in the end, finding solidarity with each other. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Ken Loach. If there was ever a reminder for hope and solidarity, it is now. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Celebrating Cinema. I am joined by the renowned director, Ken Loach. Ken, how are you? I'm very well and uh, enjoying a, a couple of days in Amsterdam. On this podcast, we always like to first ask you, what film have you watched recently? I haven't been to the cinema for some time. I'm ashamed to say. Really? No. Um, partly because I've been away travelling for um, two or three months now. And when we got back home, we've been really just in need of... Rest um, and Yeah, mind. just doing domestic things that when you've been away, you need to do. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a next visit to the cinema. And maybe I can ask you then, what's the film you often return to? Well, the, the films I, I watch just for pleasure, again, um, are the Czech films from the 1960s. Mm. Um, Yeri Mensel and uh, Milos Forman and those films from the Czech New Wave, After the Velvet Revolution, Loves of a Blonde, Closely Observed Trains, Fireman's Ball. Yeah. There's just a warmth and a humour and a humanity in them um, that I find quite beguiling. So just just for fun, those are the films I'd watch. And some very good films. Actually, we share two films in common um, being our favourites, and that is Bicycle Thieves and Battle of Algiers. And I wondered sort of what you think of them now, thinking back to them, how they've impacted your career in filmmaking, but also the sort of power that cinema can have on us through those films. I think um, Bicycle Thieves, obviously the, uh, the style had changed quite a lot mm. from when that was made, I think it was the 50s, wasn't it? And the power of that is in the story. The filmmaking, I think, has moved on a little bit since certainly moved on to the to the filmmaking of the the, the Czech films I was talking about in mm. the sixties, and sometimes the Italian films can can look a little, um, well, you, you you can see the shots being knitted together, yeah, um, and the there's a fluency that we expect now that that um, you know that had yet to develop, but the but their images are very powerful. They'll they'll have images that are really strong. So those remain with me. And, and the storyline and the idea of putting ordinary people on the screen. The strength of the Battle of Algiers is, is the, just the sheer energy and authenticity of a guerrilla warfare in the streets and houses and the, the energy of that and the fear in that and the consequences for people and pain and um, desperation of it. And I think that that's a brilliant film. And I, I got to know Gilo Pondicorvo. Really? I met him through the Italian distributor. Wow. And um, a lovely man, little twinkly man with a great sense of humour. And, and he uh, he was very helpful to us. He, he ran the Venice Film Festival for a time and ah. um, took uh, one of our films there and had a very good comment on it, really, which was very helpful, which at the time, you, you know, you tend to resist because you think... Um, because you're not far enough removed to see the value of, the, of his judgment. But mm. he was right. And um, so, uh, I mean, the, the sadness was he didn't make more films. No, he ended up... He should up, have made more, yeah. much, far more. He ended up making more documentaries, if I'm correct. Yeah. He was sort of yes. put off from making fiction or anything like Battle of Algiers, which I think now more than ever we need those kind of films. People may not be familiar, but you sort of came to film... A bit later than usual, you completed a degree in law, and then it's never been quite clear to me how did you end up directing? What sort of 
convinced you this is the path you want to take? As a kid, I was um, drawn to the theatre and mm. became very passionate about theatre. We, we lived uh, in an industrial town called Nunnish in North Warwickshire. It's about 30 miles away from Stratford-on-Avon. And I would cycle as a kid 30 miles there on an old push bike on a Saturday or something, um, watch the, the Shakespeare play in the evening and then cycle back and get back home at one o'clock or so in the morning. And, um, I mean, the roads were safer then. Um, I mean, this is, in, you know, the early 1950s. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's what I was committed to. And I, I, I managed to get into a good university and um, read law because I thought, well, that's a profession I could imagine doing, but I didn't know any lawyers and our family didn't. My dad was an electrician, um, did well, but he was an electrician. While I was at university, I got drawn into um, student theatre. When I came out, I went into the, the theatre, much against my dad's better judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Very sad he was, but there you go. Then I got a job at the BBC as a director, began doing TV series, police series. And then the huge stroke of luck to be with a group that were given the brief of making contemporary fiction at peak time on BBC One on a Wednesday. It was called the Wednesday Play. And we were working with new writers found by the story editors on the project. Um, and I did six in one year. It was really? extraordinary. See, they, they, were, they were done like plays in studios, yeah. rehearsed and made like plays, working with new writers. And then we found that studio productions was not an appropriate form to tell the stories we needed to tell, which were on the streets. You were allowed four days filming in heavy 35 mil equipment to make rather stage shots of people leaving one TV set, you know, going on the street, getting in a car, something in the car, and then getting out, and then arriving into another studio set. In those four days, we managed to get a 16mm camera. We shot half of one project <laughs> in four days, got back. I purposely cocked up the studio, knowing there was a 16mm backup. All hell broke loose. We were told off, we were so young, we were, we were irresponsible, we'd broken all the rules. Mm. But nevertheless, they let us cut the 16 film back up from the studio mm. and hey, presto, we made a film. And then they allowed us to make other films and they got quite well-known. And then I did mm. a feature film after that. So in a way, it came making films developed from an interest in the theatre. What was it that sort of ignited this sort of sort of political passion or social socialist passion of yours? Because for those that don't know, your films are very much rooted in the sort of plight and the struggle of the working class people and how the systems that we have oppress people and exploit them. And that's been the focus of your work. But what was it that sort of really f you felt the need to speak on this, but also create a platform or a way for other people's voices to be heard? In, in that time in the 60s, while we were trying to push the boundaries of TV fiction and make films rather than studio mm. plays, because the form couldn't match the content we wanted to express, 
at the same time, it was a very political time. Um, there was the new left was developing, neither Washington nor Moscow, so it was anti-Stalinist, anti-capitalist. The writers we were working with were, uh, one of them was a man I worked with a lot called Jim Allen, wonderful writer. He was political to his fingertips, political to his bones. Been a mine worker, miner. He'd been a dock worker. He'd been a building worker. He would go to a building site to join people to a trade union, join them up, get sacked, and then move on to another <laughs> building site. And he was a, an organizer in the old tradition, but a great writer. So through him, um, through the other people I was working with, we were drawn into politics. It was the time of the. Um, the May events in France, when the French film directors closed down the Cannes Film Festival to support the link between the students and the workers in France. It was a highly political at the time. New ideas, that was part of what drove us to change the, the way we were making fiction. So the, 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 they were totally intertwined, the politics, the filmmaking, the subjects we chose were totally intertwined and have been ever since. Do you think there's a, a lack of that now in films today? Well, the people who, my generation, I say our politics were learned um, post-war, mm. after the post-war settlement, the arrival of uh, the welfare state, which was the, the idea of the common good. We were good neighbours to each other. Yeah, We would to collectively... In, in the name of the state, but it wasn't an, an alien an alien entity. It was us, uh, the people. We would look after each other from the cradle to the grave. Everyone would have a home. Everyone would have a, a secure job. Everybody would have a wage to support a family, education for your kids, pension when you're old, and so on. Because that's how we'd won the war, people yeah. said. So I grew up in the, in, in that so th that was our generation. We, we, we grew up with that, that sense of, of public service and public commitment and the public good. We had the politics of the 60s driving the idea of the class struggle. The next generation grew up under Thatcher in the 80s, and that was the opposite. That was the destruction that replaced uh, public good, private greed. And it was, there was no such thing as society, she said. It was um, everyone's out for themselves, just you and your family. Your neighbour is not your comrade, it's your competitor. The entrepreneur is God and you do deals. And that is about individual replacing the collective. And that's the consciousness that has stuck. And uh, I find it very destructive. I think it's... It becomes the idea of um, it's just me. I'm out for myself and my family. And I think that's led us to where we are now. It's led us to the climate disaster because it's driven by corporate greed to extract profit, and in this case through the use of fossil fuels, the inability to plan, um, the inability to take, take our, our collective needs into account. And, and so, of course, films reflect that. And there's some, some brilliant people and some people with, with brilliant uh, intentions and great creative skill. Each generation is marked by the world they grew up in. Mm. 
And if you grow up in that world, then you've got a much harder battle to, to fight because the consciousness has changed. Many people could say, having worked in film for as long as you have and as directors in many films, why do you feel the need to make another film? Why do you feel the need to continue? Because it's, it's hard work making films, especially the subjects that you, you explore. They're not necessarily welcomed enough or encouraged enough, and yet you're here with the old oak. Well, there's so many stories to tell. They're, they're, they're great characters that, that you find. And as I say, I've always worked with writers. I mean, the, the writer is king to me. You know, the mm. writer started a blank sheet of paper. And I've worked with Paul Laverty now for 30 years. He was a great friend and comrade, but he's a brilliant writer. And we, I mean, it's our friendship and our um, working together that's um, kept, yeah. kept me going, really. That's, there's real creativity there in Paul's writing. They're great stories. The characters are great. I mean, the, the thing about ordinary people is they're, they're much closer to the, the struggles for survival, you know, to get food on the table, to get a house. I mean, that's a huge issue now for yeah. a whole generation. Where do you find security? Yeah. The comedy is better. The gags are better. The warmth is stronger. Uh, if you want help, you know, you wouldn't go to a gated community. you go to a, where people live close to... To each other, and they're used to supporting each other. There's a warmth, there's a sense of humanity, there's a, a sense of ease. They, um, there's a piss take amongst people yeah. that you just enjoy. Uh, everything about the lives of ordinary people is uh, richer and stronger than the, than the bourgeoisie, use the old term. And maybe now's a good time to talk about the old oak, and perhaps not as prevalent in your previous two films sorry we missed you and i daniel blake this is much more a focus on communities and communities finding solidarity with each other and the hope that brings us but it it focuses much more for listeners who are not familiar sort of the minor towns in the north of england and sort of how desolate they've become and how syrian refugees in particular have sort of been shipped off to these uh barren cities or towns slowly finding refuge with uh or solidarity with the people around them but sort of what real life stories influence this and could you perhaps share how working with paul laverty your writer what moments or actual things you heard being in these communities helped shape the story the the first idea was that the we'd done two films in the northeast mm. Um, and each one we thought would be um, standalone. Um, the first was about a man who didn't get the social security payments he was due. The uh, government department said he wasn't sick when he was sick. Um, the second was about the gig economy and the um, how the eight-hour day has been lost and people working 12 hours with no job security for the same money. So it was the consequences of the, the what we call neoliberal agenda. And the Northeast is a special place because it's, it was, the old industries were prominent, coal mining, steel, uh, shipbuilding, they've all gone. Mm. Um, been replaced in the cities by more casual work, um, all centres, um, gig economy work, precarious work. In the communities, the mining communities, there is nothing. 
And our story began as an idea with telling the story of those communities. Um, because when the pit shuts, there is nothing. Because they're in the countryside. Some people leave, the shops closed, the community space is shut down, the infrastructure goes, some of the schools close, the kids have to travel away. And those that are left are bitter and angry and feel cheated. But alongside them, the memory of the miners, the memory of solidarity stays. So that was the story we wanted to tell. What would clarify that? Then Paul heard the story of the, the refugees from the Syrian war. And this area, one of the poorest areas in the land, had more refugees from Syria than any other part of the country, per head of population. Bizarrely. Yeah. Of course, they're out of sight. Property is cheap. And the question was, how are these two communities going to live together? One's got nothing, and um, there's a kind of underlying current of anger and hopelessness amongst the people there. The people who have been through a war have nothing either, but they've, they've got the trauma of a war. They've lost family members. They've lost their houses. They've got nothing except what they arrive in. And they don't speak the language. And it's a foreign land. And how on earth can these two communities live together? And we thought that will that'll both clarify the what those villages have become, but it also will say something about the, the horror of people who are forced to leave their country. And with your style of filmmaking, you sort of find it very important that uh, the actors you use to tell this story are from these communities. So the characters of TJ and Yara are both people who are, I think, um, Ebla Marie, she's Syrian, right? And Dave Turner, he's also from the Northeast. What is it that gives it not only a sense of authenticity, but... Why, why is it important for you to include these people in telling their story? Um, Ebla's from uh, Golan Heights, which she said is occupied Syria. Okay. Um, and she won't have an Israeli passport. She says her land is, is occupied mm. and she identifies herself as Syrian. Um, the point about the, the, the village community is that it was very important that everyone comes from the region because that... That shared identity is very powerful. It makes it harder if you get a selection of people from across the country and all put on different voices and it, it wouldn't work. Mm. And there's a shorthand. When people are part of one community, they speak in a sort of shorthand. Yeah. Everyone knows the, what so. they're talking about. And so that was really important to have that, to, to tell the truth, to be authentic. And the, uh, the Syrian families are the Syrian families that live in the area. Uh, they are those people, um, apart from Ebla, because we couldn't find someone who's who'd got a, a good enough English for the part, because most mm. of what she says is in, in in English, and so there's her backstory is having worked in a refugee camp with international volunteers where she's learned it, and made a big commitment to learning the language. So the the authenticity of the people is very important, and then it's. Um, it's a question of allowing them to be as, as to express themselves in, in as fully aware and to reveal themselves mm. in as complete a way as possible. Because the more they reveal themselves, the more they reveal false characters. The, the guy who plays Charlie, Trevor Fox, is, 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 is an actor, I mean, a, a brilliant actor. 
Others are comedians. One of the guys runs a karaoke in the village. Oh, really? So there's there's a whole range of people. Yeah. Uh, TJ was in the last couple of films he did in yeah. small parts. Lovely man. He was a fireman for a long time. Yeah. He knows the situation of those villages. He took Paul round when Paul was doing the research. Oh, really? And we, we'd known him and, and we'd, had, we'd kept an eye on him. We thought, this, this man's got a hinterland. There's a depth to him and a sensitivity. And the good fun as well. Could we do little improvisations to audition people? And um, when he did, we must have seen him seven or eight times. And each time you try a little scene that pushes him a little bit further. Not to do with the film, yeah. but just. And he was remarkable. And and was remarkable to work with. Um, and um, was a, a very modest man, a very sensitive man. Um, and he's. He won Best Actor at um, the Idol Lead Film yeah, Festival. Yeah. Much to his amazement, absolute amazement. I, I always find it amazing how, while they're perhaps not trained as actors, how much they can bring to those characters and how much of their, just their real-life experience can, like you say, elevate the story that you're trying to tell. He is. You can see him in the way he stands in the... And, like, um, you know, men have done manual work most of their yeah. lives at that changes their body. I mean, the, yeah. the hands thicken and and that's his language yeah. and, and everything. There's just a truth about it, which is totally unselfconscious. And I think that's the great thing. If, if you can find people like that, they're not, they're not aware of what they're doing. They, I mean, they're aware of what they're doing, of course, but they're not aware that just by being themselves in the best possible way. I don't mean that in a limiting, no, no. you know, a limiting way, but... By revealing that, authenticity is, is shines from their eyes. Just to clarify, so we spoke about these sort of communities that actually share a lot in common, but is it actually what's happening now in this, these areas that these communities are able to come together, or is it more an indication of what's possible through your film? Um, no, it, it's the reality. I mean, we did... They arrived in 2016, and that's when we f set the film, because that's when there was um, no preparation um, and there was um, considerable hostility to the Syrians from some people. Um, we did the research in 2020. Paul did it mainly, um, and I went with him some of the time. And 2019, 2020, he was digging around, and that's when he heard the story of the, of the Syrians. Uh, but by that time, this was four years later, Connections were already being made. So there'd be like groups for the kids to meet after school. There'd be some of the women were getting together um, and having little projects that brought the two communities together. The eating together was Paul's idea because it is a memory of the miners' strike when the great food ki kitchens opened to feed the miners who had no, no money. And it was a great memory of the solidarity of those years. But no, absolutely, it was happening, and very much Claire Rogerson, who plays uh, Laura in the film, in her real life, she is she works for an organisation that counteracts right-wing ideas amongst yeah. young people. Yeah, she does it in her real life. She learned some words of Syrian from working with Syrian families, which she uses in the film. Mm. So yes, absolutely, the connections are being made, and we felt absolutely justified in the story with the current genocide that's happening in Palestine and the consequent 
rise in Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. Also here in the Netherlands, we're seeing sort of a growing European trend of far right on the rise. How much more urgent has this message for solidarity become? Well, the, the, you're right. I mean, the rise of the far right is, um, is, is a real phenomenon and we've got to take it seriously. And it's a massive challenge to the left because the far right gains power when the left doesn't give a clear program of hope. Mm. People fall to go to the right when they're in despair. No confidence they can change things. And hope, in a way, is political. And hope isn't a matter of crossing your fingers and wishful thinking. Hope has to be based on we have strength we, and solidarity is the building block of that. So it begins with solidarity. Don't let them divide us by racism. And here's a path we can take. And that will, to me, that has to be a socialist path of common ownership, democratic control, producing what we need um, in the best possible way with proper respect for labour rights, for job security and for the climate so that we protect the world's resources because we're going to a precipice and you can't plan co the big corporations. Mm. They will do what they want. They're international. You can't plan them. There has, there has to be international solidarity on the left and, and it's a huge task. I don't see another way forward because the closer we get to the precipice, the more, the more ruthless the right wing become. And you end up with builders here, with the Le Pen in France, with Moroni in Italy, with Orban in Hungary, uh, Vox in Spain, the ADF in Germany. I mean, it's a terrifying prospect. And if anything should galvanise the left, say, for God's sake, cut out the little sectarian squabbles, get together. So perhaps to end, 60 years in filmmaking, what still gives you hope? Solidarity. When, when people actually look each other in the eye and see each other's needs, we are, we are good neighbours. You know, the, the, the right only spreads the racism because the people they're attacking are the other. You don't know them. They look different. Their food smells different. They speak a different language. We fear them. How do you get to know someone? Look in their eyes and say, sit side by side. You find you're the same. <laughs> you know, the refugees are just, are just working class people who need help. Yeah. If it was your neighbour who needed help, you'd, you'd give them a hand up. And, and this is who they are. And, and the blame for the migration has to be with the big powers. I mean, Britain played a huge part, created a huge amount of migration with the illegal war with the US in Iraq. Destabilised the region. Um, the war in Afghanistan. Destabilised the region. Um, people, the, the failure to use the technology we have to feed people. The, the legacy of empire, where we've left countries with factions, with civil wars. Mm. Give power to the United Nations instead of, I mean, the, the, the US and Britain have undermined the United Nations with this war in Iraq. Give power to the United Nations. The United Nations is the international body, has the authority to act. It should intervene in Gaza now and say, just stop this killing, these massacres. Stop and send a force to stop it. And Britain and the US should support that. 
everywhere the UN has got has got to stand for human rights and have the strength to do that. It can only have the strength to do that if the the great well great only great in the sense of their wealth and strength of um, power support the United Nations absolutely and say right the world together must act to protect the environment to stop these wars of intervention and Britain is a bigger culprit in opposing that as any so hold my hand up for that well Ken thank you I hope people will feel that resonate watching the old oak it really is if it is to be your last film I think it's even more powerful that you end on a message of such hope and that solidarity can be found with your neighbor whoever they are so really thank you for for that and uh for everything else and for those listening in the netherlands you can go watch the old oak i please urge you to if there's ever a time to watch it it's now and it will be released on the 21st of december but thank you okay well thank you it's really nice to uh, really nice to talk to you um all the best yeah.